Praise the Lord. Here we are again, ready for another wonderful Bible study on a Tuesday. As we look into the scripture today, we want to teach you about what it means to be made holy. We want you to know God is the one that does this. And we want to work on the word sanctification. Sanctification is a big word with a lot of syllables, but it just simply means to be set apart. Now, we want to begin in Ephesians 4, and I would like to read verse 20 through 24. Ephesians 4, verse 20. But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. That ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore put away lying, every man speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Let's have a quick word of prayer. Again, Lord, it's our privilege to minister your word. We pray that you speak to all of us clearly in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Okay, everybody here knows that people are consistently talking about what it means to be holy, and we understand that to be a Christian means to be like Christ. We certainly don't want to live a profane life or an unclean life, but we need to know what it means to be made holy and who's the one that actually makes us holy. The first thing that happens when you're born again is this whole process of regeneration. God comes in by the Holy Spirit. He gives you a new heart and he plants within that heart a new disposition and a new attitude. By faith, then, your old nature or your old habits are crucified with Christ. So we believe that since Jesus died on the cross, we died with him. In fact, Paul says it this way. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. So the beauty of the Christian life is that there's someone resident within me who wants to manifest himself. Paul tells us in the scripture we just read that we have to renew our minds. Now this is where the principle of sanctification begins. The renewing of the mind is necessary. The more you learn about Christ, the more that he himself can do to help you live a godly life. Our mind is what very often leads our actions. We think about something, and then pretty soon our actions follow what we've been thinking about. Somebody falls in love with someone, they think about how they can wine, dine, and romance them. Then before you know it, they're following out that principle. Somebody gets to thinking about a new car, then pretty soon they're making their way to some car lots. Somebody becomes a born-again Christian, they begin to think about a new life, and pretty soon their behavior begins to correspond to the new thinking. 
Since Paul says our minds have to be renewed, that means there's enough old stuff up here that needs to be pushed out, that it's an endless journey. You're constantly pushing out the old and bringing in the new. In fact, I, I contend that if, if you're not renewing your mind, you can't do verse 22 and you can't do verse 24. Verse 22 is to put off the old man. If you're not renewing your mind with God's word, then you'll never know what the old stuff is that you need to get rid of. And if you're not renewing your mind with the word, you'll never know how to put on the new man. Paul says here it's created in righteousness and true holiness. In Colossians, he tells us the new man that we should put on is after the image of God. Once you become a Christian, that new nature, it comes to you by the power of God. And in that new nature, there's no prejudice. You, do you realize a, a person that's born again and in love with God, they love people? You have to teach a person to be prejudiced. That doesn't come from the new, the new life in God. You have to teach somebody to do that. The man or woman who comes to Christ and, and, and places everything at the foot of the altar and begins a new life, that's an opportunity to roll every burden and every care off on the shoulders of God. His shoulders are big enough to bear it. We can't handle it on our own. The blood of Jesus cleanses us. So the Spirit of God then begins the process of illumination, and as he shines light on the Word, then we begin to see this is good, this is bad, this I should not do, this I ought to do. Now this is where the, the, the change in the lifestyle begins, and this is what we call sanctification. When I became a Christian, I quickly learned there were things I should not do. So I shouldn't use foul language. I'm a Christian. My conversation should be used to be uh, edifying, and my conversation should be seasoned with grace. When I became a Christian, I understood immediately, these eyes should not behold that which is unclean. Now, this, is a, this is something people have to grow into. Some people get it quickly. Other people struggle with it. Nevertheless, this is the process of sanctification. Once I became a believer in the Lord and I started walking with him, I had no interest at all in secular music. There are a whole lot of people, that stuff doesn't bother them at all, but I don't care anything about all of that. My interest is to fill my head and my mind with those those words and those sentences that which will glorify the king, knowing that this body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Job said, I've made a covenant with my eye. See? Now, if sanctification is not at work in your life and you're not permitting God, the Holy Ghost to make you holy, then you destroy your testimony amongst other people. And then pretty much you end up in a whole lot of conviction from God and condemnation from the devil. And here's an example. There are plenty of people who say they love God and are Christian and walk with God. But as adults, they'll sit there and they will watch things on TV with their adult children that they probably shouldn't watch. Then after it's over, they'll say something like this. Well, we got a revival taking place at the church this week. Why don't you come on out and, and maybe God will speak to you. Now, you didn't just spend 15, 20 minutes or 30 minutes or a couple of hours watching all kinds of filth. And now you want to tell them about they ought to come and live holy. And they're just looking at you and politely declining because they know that if it hadn't changed you, how's it going to change me? 
And there are plenty of people who don't see any kind of, of, of contradiction in our lifestyle when it comes to living for God. Paul says earlier here in verse number 20, you have not so learned Christ. So Christ is the object of every believer's learning. He is the object of our Christian education. He's the basis of everything that we learn to do as far as being a Christian. How can I be like him? How can I be strong in my faith? How can I possess unwavering characteristics so that my peers will not have the strong kind of influence that they would like to have over me. When I went to the Marine Corps, those folks were vile. Those folks were foul. Everybody loved to get drunk. They'd spend their money on places there's no way on this earth I would ever even darken the door to go into, and they would be involved with brawling and everything else. And plenty of them thought that because I was a Christian, I was soft and, and all of these things. But, you know, I, I can say this. When I was 17 and 18, I wasn't quite as sanctified as I am now. You know, I, I, could, I could get angry real fast if somebody was bothering me. But, but at the same time, I helped them to understand that the Scripture says a man with an unruly spirit is like a city with the walls all torn down. A man or woman that walks with God and is able to control their emotions control their appetites and their desires. That's a person that's allowing God to make them holy. When a baby is just a little tiny thing and, and can't communicate when they're in pain or what kind of problems they're having, mom and dad look after that child, carry it from one place to another. But the moment that little, that little child is able to move those legs a little bit and stand up on its own, then they kind of let him wander from one place to another. And then when, they, when he learns how to use the commode, the, the diapers disappear. Once somebody learns how to use the fork and the knife, then all of a sudden the bottle, it disappears. What is mom and dad doing to that baby? They're sanctifying that child. They're setting that char child apart from that which is, is possible in infancy, but to something else that's for another age bracket now. And this is why seven-year-olds aren't taught the same things that someone who's 17 or 18 will learn. And parents don't talk to a four-year-old about bills in the house like they'll talk to somebody that's 22. The Christian life demands that we go from grace to grace, from faith to faith, from glory to glory. The moment you have accomplished one thing by trusting God, you then move into another cycle where you're trusting God here. There will never be a time in your Christian life where you are not believing God for something or someone. People may say, well, I, I, I don't even have any needs. I don't even ask God for anything. You're deceived because there's always somebody that's lost that you know of. There's always someone that's hungry that you know of. And you can pray for them. You can, you can believe God for them. So this idea of sanctification begins at the new birth and God starts working on us, molding us and shaping us and setting us apart. Now let's go into the Old Testament, look at a couple of scriptures here, and I'm going to ask you to go to, to uh, Exodus and we'll go to chapter 19. Exodus 19, and look at verse number 10. The Lord says to the Israelites, 
Go to the people, says to Moses, go to the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their clothes. Now to sanctify means to be set apart. This is the process of taking something that has been consecrated and placing it over in another particular area. This is what God did when he brought us out of sin into righteousness. He translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. So you were sanctified when you were born again. In fact, Paul says it this way in Corinthians. Jesus Christ has been made our sanctification, made unto us our sanctification. Now, there are churches in the South that believe sanctification is a secondary blessing. And they think you've got to get in the altar and pray and ask God to sanctify you. And once you're sanctified, that old nature will be done away with and you'll never sin again. That is utter deception. As long as you are able to be tempted, there's an old man in there somewhere. And as long as you're in this physical body breathing You need to know that there's something within you that the adversary goes after to tempt. He remembers your old life, your old habits, your old addictions. He's constantly trying to use those to pull you down. Because if he can pull you down, he can put you in shame and guilt and condemnation. And as long as you're feeling a whole lot of shame, guilt and condemnation, you won't be as useful to God as you could be because you're constantly feeling bad. And some people are always saying, I just don't feel worthy to do this. I don't feel good enough to talk to somebody about this or that. Well, none of us are perfect and none of us are ever going to be perfect. However, despite our perfections, but because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says we are saints. That's the noun form of sanctification. We are saints so that we can do the things God has called us to do, not because we're washing our clothes, as stated here for those under the old covenant, but because he has washed us in his blood and given us new garments. So I traded my old garment of sorrow for one of praise. Let's look at another verse here. Go to Numbers, and in Numbers chapter 11, Notice what it says in verse 18. That's the fourth book of your Bible, if you're, you're, you're following this by television. Numbers 11, verse 18. Say to the people, sanctify yourselves against tomorrow, and you shall eat flesh. And you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Who shall give us flesh to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you flesh, and you shall eat. So the Lord was telling them, separate yourself, because I'm getting ready to do something great. Now, now this is part of why we fast. When we pray sometimes, when when you are in need of God to do something for you, or maybe God is motivating you inwardly to do this, according to Isaiah 58, there is a fast that pleases God. And it's not the kind of fast where you're just running around here trying to do good works, but it's you humbling yourself in the presence of God. Now, what is a fast? A fast is when you decide I'm separating myself unto God so that I can give him a particular amount of time. And during this time, I am not going to eat or drink. Now, there are times where people fasted and they did drink. 
But let's remember a story with Esther. When Esther had to go before the king, she asked her people to fast. And not only did she refrain from eating and drinking, they didn't even feed the cattle. How'd you like to be one of the cattle and have to go on a fast just because the queen going on one? That's exactly what happened. Why is fasting important? Because the appetites of this body are so great that many people cannot live beyond or outside of the control of their hunger pains. That's why. The first sin in the Bible is connected to eating. And so that is why when fasting comes along, there's nothing that kills that appetite and destroys that power that it can exert over your life. Like you turning the plate down and even when you're hungry, deciding I'm not eating anything because I'm giving this time to God. Because I'm going to demonstrate that my spirit man rules over my body rather than me uh, allowing the, uh, the belly to control my life. There are many different ways and time frames that people fasted in Scripture. Some fasted for a few days. A handful of people fasted for 40. I, I just think you just need to talk to God and you guys work that out on your own. I'm not going to get into any kind of legalism. I've seen people fast 40 days and then turn around and think they have to do it every year on the anniversary when they completed it the first time. Then they feel bad if they don't have a 40-day fast every year. That's not the plan of God. We're not turning this into legalism. But there are times when God will deal with your heart. I have always chosen, uh, I've always preferred a more fasted life. Now, typically, Thursday is the day that in the churches we have for fasting. But I've typically gone sun up to sundown. Just don't do anything. Then have a meal in the evening, except if I'm going to visit people or, or something like that. If I can, I like to stay inside where I can just give my time to God. You know, it's kind of kind of hard to, to to fast when you know you go visit some of these beautiful old older ladies and they they got these uh, fre freshly made chocolate chip cookies. You know, pastors coming by, and and, and that that kind of a kind of a temptation, but I, I prefer to just be able to give my time to God. And, and when I do that, I mean, there's a spiritual cleansing that's involved with that. I'm not fasting because I think I control, con control God. I'm fasting to humble myself in the presence of God so that God understands, and I know he knows this, that I'm not going to allow the belly to dominate my life. So that's part of sanctification. Set apart some time. Now there are people who will say something like this. Well, I'm, 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 I'm fasting watching television uh, for a week and a half. Or, or somebody will say, well, I'm, uh, how did some, some folks do it? I'm fasting meat during Easter time, just going to eat fish or something like that. that. That's not a fast, folks. That's a diet. That, that's all that is. That, that's a diet. And when someone says to me, well, I'm on a Daniel fast, and I, I usually don't say much, but in, in my mind, I'm thinking you're on a diet. That's all you are, because Daniel at no time in chapter one ever stated he was fasting. 
He merely said to the eunuch that was in charge of them, we don't want to eat the defiling food that you put before the king. We want to preserve a kosher diet in accordance with our beliefs. And so if you just give us a few vegetables and let us drink a little bit of water or whatever, we're going to be fine. Now, other people say, well, I'm going on a Daniel fast and I'm just eating vegetables. And again, I say it's not a Daniel fast. It's a diet. A fast is when you deny the body the nutrients and the nourishment and the sustenance that are in these foods. I've seen people go on fast and they've got these big protein shakes and those protein shakes got more, got more nutrients in it than a meal that somebody would eat every three or four hours. No, folks, we're humbling ourselves in the presence of God, demonstrating to God that we can live a life that's consecrated and set apart. I didn't mean to say all that, but we said it anyhow. Okay, so let's, let's look at this a little bit more. Uh, in 1 John chapter 1, verse number 7, what is sanctification? 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son. I told you when we began that the spirit comes to work in your life at new birth. As he begins to shine the light on the word and on different aspects of your life, he then shows you what to turn from and he shows you what to turn to. That process is sanctification. Once I realize there's something in me that displeases God, that I'm engaged in activities that are sinful or wrong. It's at that point I can avail myself of the blood of Jesus Christ and his blood cleanses of all sin. Now people forever have been trying to deal with the guilt that comes with sin by, by the works of their hands. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and God found them in the bushes. And when the Lord found them in the bushes, they started pointing a finger at one another. In the end, what did they end up trying to do? Make some skins to cover up their nakedness. And from Genesis until now, the way mankind has tried to deal with guilt and shame is fabricate something from their minds with their hands that will make them feel better about their sin issue. We see it over and over again. So, so here, is, here is someone who, who knows they've been engaged in activity they shouldn't be engaged in. So they figure, well, if I go clean the houses of several people, that's going to make me feel better. Or someone who's a sinner doesn't know God, they think, well, if, if I go and I volunteer at a food bank and give away food, or if I go to a pantry and give away food, I'm going to feel better about myself. Well, you may think you're going to feel better about yourself, but you haven't dealt with the issue that's producing the guilt in the first place. That's the issue of sin. This is why John says in chapter one here, verse number seven, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Paul told us that light and darkness has no fellowship. When I come in contact with another Christian, there's something that bears witness we can agree. I enjoy being with them. We may not agree on everything or even a denomination or something like that, but we agree 
on the virgin birth, the sinless life, the death, burial, and resurrection, the ascension of Christ, and the fact that he's coming back again. So when I come in contact with somebody from around planet Earth that knows the king, then light comes in contact with light. But when I come in contact with somebody filled with darkness, then immediately there's something that repels us. And this is why there's disagreement between Christians and sinners. We are constantly trying to convert sinners to a way of life that they've never, ever accepted by the new birth. You cannot convert a man to Christian principles if you can't get that man or woman to become a Christian. The new birth gives people a new set of faculties, new eyes for a new perspective, new ears to hear things differently, a new heart to have sensations and emotions about things that they've never had before. When I come in contact with someone truly born again, I know I'm dealing with someone that knows God. And that's why in this whole process of sanctification, God wants us to make use of that blood. Now let's go to Romans 12 now. Romans 12, and I'll show you something else here in verse number 1. We're, we're, we're talking about what it means to be made holy. We've tried this on our own, but it doesn't work. There, there was a time when the holiness Baptist churches in the South uh, wouldn't allow people uh, to own a television. You see, it just, it just, you couldn't have one. Now, I'm not going to lie, I've seen enough stuff on television, I wonder sometimes how people don't go crazy watching that thing. But, but, but I do know there's a lot of good that comes through that. Just a tool, just a tool. Good and bad can come through that just as well as the computer. But people are constantly trying to make themselves holy. They read in the Old Testament where uh, a woman shouldn't wear what pertains to a man. So you've got a whole group of people on planet Earth, or I should say in parts of America, that don't think a lady ought to wear a pair of pants. Without even knowing that ancient Romans didn't wear the kind of clothing we wear anyhow. Then you have, then you have those that, you know, they don't want anybody to put any makeup on. They, they'll tell you, you set a barn on fire and the first thing that'll blister will be the paint. They think all of this is making people holy. And they think if I live that way, I'm living a sanctified life. I'm telling you, you're not. I, I've, I've met people that try to quote a verse out of Corinthians. It says a woman ought not ever cut her hair. You know, they, they just think it's, it's ungodly if a woman ever does that. Just beauticians all over planet Earth are out of the will of God simply because somebody has a belief system, says a woman, ought not cut her hair. So what I'm telling you is we cannot produce in and of ourselves by our own rules what only the blood is able to do for us. The blood makes us holy. Christ is the one that cleanses us. I do know that what I wear won't make me holy, but I know you can wear too few clothes and that'll make you unholy. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've seen that too. Uh, Peter said to Sarah, or said to the reader that Sarah was, was modest in her apparel. Well, that's how we all should live. We should try to be the kind of people that are drawing attention to the king. You know, I, I see these ministers sometimes... And when they take their hands out of their pockets, they got big stones on every, every finger. I mean, just, the rocks are big, folks. I'm telling you, huge. And, and you know each one costs a whole lot of money. And then when they're talking to you, they like to make sure they're doing this kind of a thing, you know, and just flashing it in the light, you know, just so everybody gets a chance to see that. And the whole time when I, when I ever I'm in a room with that, I think this is absolutely despicable. 
you know, so carnal, uh, dripping with the world, trying to impress people that don't know God. But the man or woman that walks with God in holiness is somebody that's going to move in the power of God because there'll be a firebrand plucked out of the fire. And when they lay hands on the sick, the expectation will be there for God to do something. We want to cast out devils and make the devil leave when we won't go when God tells us to go somewhere and be led by him. So notice then in Romans 12, verse number one, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now notice this is something you do and I do. Present ourselves to God. How do I do that? Well, as God renews my mind with his word and he changes my thinking and I'm getting rid of the old man and I'm putting on the new man, that whole process is making it possible for me to present myself to God as a sacrifice. I'm saying, God, I belong to you. I belong to you, God. This is your body. You, you, you can do whatever you want with it. You redeemed it. Scripture said, I'm bought with a price. You can clothe it. You can starve it. You can send it anywhere on you, you want on planet Earth. It belongs to you. And I've seen plenty of people that have gone around the world with the gospel and have had to deal with this. The full consecration of God demands that we submit to his will. I'll finish by telling you this. John and Betty Stamp, many, many years ago, nearly a hundred years ago, met in Moody Bible Institute and fell in love with each other because they were deeply in love with God. Both of them felt like they were called to go to China, so they began to prepare themselves to make their way there. They took a ship, and sure enough, that's exactly what they did. Got over there to China and had to walk mile after mile to get to the region where they were supposed to be involved with an evangelistic tour. There was another young Chinese couple that was going to meet them. This uh, American couple, John and Betty, had just had a newborn. So here they were making their way to a village. The situation was volatile. Communists were taken over and bandits and everything were rumored to be in the different regions. And so when they finally got to the little hut where they were going to set up shop and travel and preach the gospel, after a few days, the rumor, rumor mill was going and saying these, these, these communist folks are coming and they don't like Westerners and they hate Christians even more. And so they said, are you going to leave? They said, no, we're, we're here in the call of God. We're, we're staying right here. And that's what they did. And, and one of those mornings, the, uh, uh, the word came out that the marauders ha have come to the gates of the city. And they, they sent word to them, said, get out of here as quick as you can. But before they could get anything packed, all those bandits had come through the gate. And they wanted to know where all the foreign devils were. And they found out there were two missionaries in that little village. They went to that house. That mother knew that this would probably be the end. She, knowing that the bandits were coming, took her little baby, newborn baby, couldn't even been a couple of months or so old, took that newborn baby, put it in a basket, put a blanket on top of her, stuck a $10 bill in it, walked to the top of a hill and prayed and left the baby. 
29 hours later, the baby was discovered, and the baby never even cried. Nobody even knew the child was up there. 29 hours later. But when the bandits got to the house and the mom and dad were there, took both of them prisoner, stripped them of their outer garments, and made them march about 30 or so miles, maybe a little bit longer, through one village after another, embarrassing them. Sometimes even put the mother on top of a mule or a horse so that she could just walk. Well, there was uh, a, uh, a time there when they finally got to the outskirts of one village and they were wanting a ransom and John had written a letter back to the folks for the China Inland Mission saying this is how much money they want. And we know you don't take care of ransoms, but we've resolved that whatever happens, we'll glorify God with our life, we'll glorify God with our death. And they took that father right outside that village and they made him kneel down and brought all the Chinese folks from the village out there to watch. And they had him kneel down. That man pulled a knife out and beheaded him. And the wife, broken by what she saw, fell to her knees and just screamed. And before the scream could even really be completed, there they went. And he cut, cut, cut her, her head off also. Left the bodies out there in the streets for anybody to see who came. The next day, those uh, that young Chinese couple who was going to come and do an evangelistic tour with them, to preach with them, started inquiring about where these folks were at. Somebody told them where they took them. They made their way to where they were. The bodies were still there. That young evangelist, he got a needle and he got some thread and to the best of his ability, tried to sew those severed heads back on those bodies, give them a decent burial. The Christians that were in that area got together, dug a hole, put them in there. And the next day when the, the bandits came back and wanted to mutilate the bodies even more, they wouldn't give up the location of where the bodies were buried. But they remembered there was a baby. They said, where is that baby? They said, well, it's got to be around here somewhere. So people started looking and found that little child on the top of a hill and somehow reunited that child with her grandparents who also were missionaries to China. And she was raised by her grandparents and by other people. She changed her last name and grew up, had a great ministry as a Christian. But here's the thing. They made the determination when they were at Moody Bible Institute, having read the scriptures, going to all the world, preach the gospel. They made the determination to take this body, consecrate it to God, let God send it wherever he wanted to send it even if it meant death. A full consecration and our sanctification demands that if we're going to set ourselves apart to walk with God, then we've got to be fully consecrated to God, no matter what. The time frame in which we're living right now, so many people are embarrassed about having faith in the Lord. And we're watching as Christians are being persecuted around the world. Who would have ever thought that in a lovely nation like this, people having outdoor services with people sitting in their cars, listening on the radio station with the windows up, they'd get tickets for assembling, listening to somebody preach. But yet down in Mississippi, we see that kind of a thing happening. Even though now the tickets have been voided by the mayor, who would have wanted to be the policeman to walk up to a car in the church parking lot and give a ticket, $500, for every person in the car because they're listening to a man of God preach? But you drive a few yards down the road, there's somebody sitting in a restaurant parking lot. And nobody cares at all that they're sitting there eating food. But somebody eating spiritual food 
They say it's, it's wrong. It's wrong. This is where we're going as a nation. This is why the church has to stand their ground and believe what the word says. Because this thing is not going from bad to good. This thing looks like it's going downhill. But I can tell you this. Jesus said the city of God, the church of Jesus Christ is a city set on the hill. We're going to let our light shine and our light's going to shine bright in the midst of darkness. We will not be intimidated because we're going to serve God and walk with him. And we'll find that God will be right there. He'll be right there with us in the middle of all of this. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful today that you are the one that has made us holy we walk with you, you will guide us, preserve us, and lead us into further blessing. Be with each one of us in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen, amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.